Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Jerry Bowie. Jerry Bowie. Oh my gosh, Jerry. Hey. Awesome. Jerry. Love it. We're bringing the band back together, Jerry. Jerry Bowie. Thank you so yeah. much for joining me here on Cassie and so. It's my it's my pleasure. Not to be confused, Cassie and Jerry here for this podcast, but normally we do a Bowie and Burns, right? Mm-hmm. That's been on pause yes. because of our yes. schedules. We're, we are not unfamiliar with one another with the podcast. Correct. You know, <laughs> with the podcast shows, so. Well, why don't you tell everyone how we know each other, Jerry? Because I think it's a really great meet cute story. It is, yeah. So we met through social media we were one or two of very few people that were talking about e-discovery and digital forensics on TikTok at the time. This must have been two years ago, Cassie, yeah. feels mm-hmm. like. Yeah, I think that's um, right. And we were just getting started. I mean, I remember our follower counts were not like huge and they're still not huge because it's such a niche subject mm-hmm. area. But I think as TikTok does, they put our content on each other's For You page known as the FYP in the TikTok lingo. And we're like, oh, this is interesting. You were doing e-discoverist mm-hmm. at the time, right? And I think that's what you yes. call your account. And I was doing Forensicator. Um, mm-hmm. So it may have, I changed it recently to just Forensics Expert. If you're in the industry, Forensics and e-discovery goes together like peanut butter and jam. Absolutely. We're like two sides of the same coin. And then... We found out we lived very close to each other. So it's just like, whoa, great. Let's meet up and have coffee and talk. And yeah. we just really hit it off. We did. And the algorithm couldn't help but put us together, given the niche industry and the fact that we're both in DFW right. in, in the Metroplex. And so we're- we met at a Starbucks and totally hit it off. And everything kind of snowballed from there. We both are very interested in social media. And I think it's from... We'd like to share information, and I know I enjoy it as a professional exercise, and I suspect you're the same way, right? You're used to using AI and technology and and seeing how that, in essence, is what social media is. We're using the same tools in litigation, so... Um, yeah, I think you and I like to tinker. So, I mean, mm-hmm. when it's about evidence that is ultimately going to appear in our e-discovery or digital forensics work stream, we want to know more about it. There's no better way of knowing more about the social media content, the AI content, deep fakes, metaverse, artifacts, all those things are like so new and emerging and someone has to figure it out and stay ahead of the game before it reaches review. So we have to be able to collect it. We have to be able to authenticate it. We have to be able to process it. And so being heavily involved in social media and these emerging thought leadership topics makes makes our capability to handle this stuff that much better. 
Right. And I think we're both very curious souls. We like to tinker and ponder. And we both had an interest in emerging technology because I think we both realize the potential challenges it may bring to our profession. And our profession Mm -hmm. is one that's been fairly static in a certain way for a number of years. We've had a good, I would say, 10 or 15 years where we were very focused on email data and traditional Microsoft Word type application, Word, Excel, shared on SharePoint, stuff like that. And we developed very robust and effective systems to analyze that data in an efficient way. And we're really, I think, struggling And I know this is something we talked about very early on. We're struggling with short messages. We're struggling with text messages and chat messages. And we're trying to force the same type of problem solving that we've used very successfully for more robust, detailed, authored content versus short form messages, which is very different. And I think that like so many other things we're seeing, it's like the canary in the coal mine. It's, it's, proving to be a hard nut for our profession to crack. And Mm. we've been using text messages for a while now. And then when you think ahead to things like, you know, and we'll talk about some of that in this episode, like digital twins, where there's a constant state of data being updated. It's not static or fixed in time. How are Mm -hmm. we going to deal with that? Mm -hmm. Or deep fakes and authentication was never, you know, something you nearly glossed over in law school. I don't even know if we talked about it very much in in evidence or or civil procedure. And Jerry, you're about to be like the most important person in the world when it comes to litigation, maybe. I mean, authentication is going to take on a much different type of attitude, but I think I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Why don't you tell everybody what you do, Jerry? Because not everyone knows you like I know you. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm I'm one of the digital forensics leaders at a consulting company called FTI Consulting Technology. We are a bench of experts that handle the authentication and testimony surrounding digital evidence. And that's making sure that it was collected in a defensible way and that it can serve as reliable evidence in court. Traditionally, that's been gathering up email and mobile, like you said, with the text messages. And we're getting better at understanding the distinction between kind of asynchronous emails that are written with a lot more context versus live synchronous communication where a document would contain much less data. And so how do you construct a more context sensitive document or transcript that someone that an attorney can review? And so that's taking some liberties with this short form messaging and putting it into something that, you know, emulates a document, a multi-page document, which is really what attorneys are used to and something that's constraining our industry. I think it's trying to, it's, we got to break out of that mold in order to accommodate all this emerging data, right, Cassie? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would, my dream, and I've I've talked to some of the, the people and some of our leading software providers, and I try to be very honest about it. I think it's not a software developer problem. It's not an attorney problem. It's all of us problem. We're all, yeah. I don't think we all know the right answer of how to deal with that, the short form message issue. And I nearly feel that it would be great to have outsiders come in and nearly have a hackathon and just kind of explain 
Right. This is the problem we have and not tell them what our current solution is, but how would they address handling what we have to do when you get the data, you don't just get the data and send it to the other side. You actually have to look at the data and confirm a it's relevant to the issue. So the other side should get it. B it doesn't include any privileged information. So it, it, it shouldn't be held back right. because of that privilege right. Or B, the other thing we also check for is who can actually see it once it's it's been sent to the other side. There are like tiers yeah. of access to seeing it. Those are the three pillars of most standard reviews. Yeah. And and I think that we have to like not think about I would just love to see how these systems are going, nearly like a native based review platform, because I think the way technology is going it just is getting further and further removed from that rubric of document attachment. Here's a letter that you got in the mail. And that's really right. what e-discovery came from. It's the electronic form of what was previously used in litigation, yeah, which was paper. really paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think people fall off their seats, e-discovery folks, paralegals, attorneys, judges, everyone in lit support in our industry when we talk about metaverse artifacts or digital twins or deep fakes, uh, you know, <laughs> and it's like, we're still trying to figure out, like you said, short, short. messages, right? And it's been 20 years. And so, yeah. um, you know, while they might fall off their seat and say, we're not ready for that, it's kind of like you got to introduce the concepts early and ease people into it. I think the biggest miss for the business world and for regulators is was sorry blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency and the almost immediate fallout from that and all the schemes pyramid schemes the rug pulls mm -hmm. you know the nft scams there were real that was really harmful to society and it's just we weren't on top of it i think mm -hmm. we were way behind and the lesson learned there is okay let's not turn a blind eye to new technology that could huge, have huge ramifications on folks that will be invo involved in litigation or regulatory matters. Let's figure it out beforehand so that we can keep the wheels of justice turning, ideally. And so that's where I'm focused, where you're focused, and we just want to do a good job at some thought-provoking themes and concepts to tackle. It's not that we have all the answers. I like your idea of doing a hackathon to figure it out, getting people in a room, but it's the education first and foremost to let people know what's coming down the pike. This weekend, Damon and I saw Oppenheimer and mm -hmm. it made me think of that, that leap that they took whenever it was theoretical physics, theoretical mm. to actual practical, where they were able to test out their theories and build it. And the whole dialogue of U.S. not being ready for quantum physics, any of that, we're not focused on it. And that's yeah, really yeah. what brought him, Oppenheimer, back to the States after studying in Europe for, for a while to really get that interest. And I was telling my husband and of course, it's like, I always have to bring it back to the blockchain. But I feel like that's where we are right now with a lot of this emerging technology. A lot of it is theoretical and we don't really know what's going to stick and we don't know how we're going to 
deal with it in our daily lives, nor do we know how we'll manage the potential fallout or negative aspects of it. Yeah. But you and I are both the people on that bleeding edge where we want to like try and figure it out and talk about it and just be part of it. I I don't know. It's like the cure. It it gets me so motivated, but I don't know what, have you seen Oppenheimer? What do you think about that? No, I thought it was amazing. I mean, I've, I always thought about math and, the symbolic nature of math and language and its abstraction to try to explain like the real world, the physical world, and the that leap that they took with splitting the atom and how, how really caught up they were in that discovery and actually building something practical out of it, kind of understanding the ramifications, like really understanding the ramifications, but moving forward anyway mm-hmm. um, for the sake of a science and discovery. And I, we're at kind of that eight, splitting of the end of at a moment here with generative AI. And there's a lot of stuff that's falling on. Like as soon as they figured out the splitting of the atom, they wanted to do the, I think it was a, a fusion, a fusion bomb instead of a fission bomb, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I, And I'm not, I'm not a chemist or a scientist or anything like that, but you could, you saw how quickly they pivoted from right. building this semi-destructive bomb you know, this atom bomb to something even more devastating. And that's kind of Chris Nolan, the director's point is that this stuff can really run away from us and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, yeah, so that's I, what I worry about a little bit and not from, not just from the, um, you know, the forensics and litigation side of things. We, you know, we're looking at the potential fallout from these technologies already. So I think we're taking great care there, but there's also the ethical ramifications Mm -hmm. you know just because we can do something doesn't mean we should um you know but it seems like regulators are more on top of it now again i think they're learning from the um the total you know blockchain nft miss that they made the cryptocurrency miss that they made even though like you said theoretically the uh, santoshi kind of approach to cryptocurrency is a perfect is in theory a perfect construct but it's been misused in so many ways by imperfect humans that try to manipulate it. Yeah. And there's a lot of issues. I think that there's a, I was actually talking to someone today about this. There's a bit of a rose colored glass of idealized utopian view of that blockchain concept is so perfect and it's just so wonderful in so many ways, Mm -hmm. but it can still be used for ill. It could be used to post sensitive information, to post PII or PHI, personally identifying information on a blockchain. And if it is a very super immutable, you know, indestructible blockchain like Bitcoin <laughs> via ordinals, what are right. you going to do to get that off of that? You, you can't do anything, you know? Right. So, so how, that tension that occurs between data privacy rights and, right. and this technology, it's a, it's, we're still in young days with a lot of this technology and we don't know once it matures, how we're really going to deal with some issues. Now I know one technology you've been very focused on Jerry is mm-hmm. metaverse and in particular deep fakes. And you yeah. speak about it a lot so much that Intermahole came knocking on your door and said, Jerry, come be an advisor to us. Is that right? That did, They did. Yeah. And this is the power of social media, really. It's the way that you build your reputation or your brand. And it just has opened up so many 
doors for me. And so Interpol came in and liked what I was doing and some of the concepts and thought provoking things that I was tackling in my newsletter and, and posts across social media. And they asked me to be a co-lead on their Interpol Metaverse expert group. And so I co-lead the uh, Metaverse Forensics and Investigations group. I'm also part of a new expert group that they created for deepfakes, which is the negative side of generative AI. And we really see, as part of our Interpol efforts, a overlap between Metaverse and Gen AI and deepfakes and how deepfakes can run amok within these virtual worlds. And so that's what I'm contributing towards with Interpol and the really excellent members of all the working groups there. That's so exciting. I just love that you're involved in Interpol. I feel like I'm watching a movie. <laughs> so, well, tell me, because we talked, we touched on authentication earlier and deep fakes yeah. really, really are driving home or generative AI, not knowing if it was really created or someone talking. What are you seeing discussed as potential ways to battle faked information, faked content? Yeah, there's, that's one side of the coin. When I'm working with Interpol, it's mostly around guidelines for law enforcement to use Gen AI uh, or AI detection and prevention in an ethical way. So oh, interesting. Really, yeah, it's really putting the guardrails around the police officers. So who watches The Watchmen? I think it's Jerry Bowie. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I love that comic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, oh man, it is kind of, um, really interesting. That's what they're starting and they're starting about how to protect citizens, but it's not the criminals that they're focusing on at the moment. They're starting from top down, starting with the agencies and, and the ethical behavior and the use of AI there. I think here in the States, we've been talking mostly about the criminals that would harness this technology for ill hence deep fakes. But yeah, I, I like there's a lot of different angles here. It's the deep fake content working its way into our ESI e-discovery stream. And it's that authentication. You're supposed to authenticate pre-trial for basic stuff, especially stuff that's going to be in dispute. And so judges don't want to see experts dragged in just on the authentication piece. They want to see experts opine on the contents of the evidence and not the uh, credibility or authenticity of the evidence. That needs to be, you know, a lot of that was taken at face value, but with Gen AI, face value isn't good enough. The fact that everyone needs to see and hear and touch and read with their own um, eyes, ears, and uh, senses, it's almost like your senses can't be trusted anymore. And they're so good. They passed the Turing test for being generated by an actual human that you need an expert to really unpack it and determine whether or not something is genuine or fake before it's actually being considered or considered as admissible in the in evidence. So that is that's huge overhead that you have to undertake in order to even start the judicial process. Yeah, it's it's something that I think has been very rote and kind of assumed. And now I think mm -hmm. there is the potential for gamemanship around authentication potentially. And we see that in discovery yeah. anyway. A lot of times discovery is used as a sword, bury someone in paper or have a lot of costly disputes over whether or not your productions were sufficient. But I see this being a really 
big issue on big cases, but I also see it being a very big issue on smaller, more intimate cases like family law issues or things like more domestic related matters as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fake screenshots of text messages times a hundred when it comes to deep fakes, right? So it's not just faking a dialogue between you and supposedly someone else to fake the evidence uh, on your side. It's also guilty people who are going to claim legitimate evidence as deep fakes, right? To try mm-hmm. and, and maybe they get exonerated for that reason because there, you can't disprove the fact that it it was a Gen AI version of their voice or their face or their body movements caught on video robbing the jewelry store, even though it's clear as day. And usually you would consider that as red hand getting caught red handed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, it's already been introduced as a a potential excuse or a alibi is that, Oh, that what you're suggesting is actual evidence against me is a deep fake created by your side or someone else. And then you have to go through the pains of actually proving that it's, that it is genuine when those when those um, things are brought up. That means more forensic acquisition of devices, more forensic acquisition of data sources. I mean, it's not like the forensic expert is going to be able to just look at it and determine that determine on their own necessarily with their own senses because we're humans too. That something is a deep fake. We're going to have to use traditional methods plus some additional tools. So there's really a couple of ways of looking at it. Is the perceptual analysis, which is, yes, maybe you do, it does look real even to our own senses, but there's some hints or some things that tip us off as to it being fake just by looking at it. But there's also the audit trail, traditional Mm -hmm. forensics of being able to track where it came from and who actually created or generated it alongside traditional metadata, like the create dates, modified dates, access dates, and things of that nature. So it's a, it's going to be a huge lift and greater expense to parties to involve an expert to authenticate this media. So it won't be as simple and straightforward, at least right now, as I'm going to look at the metadata or the data about the data. So if you right click on a document, you go to properties, you can see who the author was, when it was created, all that kind of stuff. If you take a photo, there's usually metadata about the type of camera, maybe even your your settings whenever you took the photo, the date and time. But there's not going to be metadata that goes, you know what? this was run through deep faked software. So it sounds like what you're saying, Jerry, is you really have to look at more than just some of the metadata will help maybe point you in the right direction, but you might also look at what software they had access to on their devices. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. The pre deep fake versions of the media on their laptops or their desktop computers where the software that's used to manipulate this stuff is installed. Now, the basic stuff, we're going to be able to look at metadata and tell. Like even with fake screenshots, you can go to a web URL. I think there's called like fakesms.com. There's a variety of them where you can go to and literally type in what you want the other person to say. You type in what you want to say. You can put a date timestamp on it. You can make it look like an iOS iMessage screenshot. Um, But when you export it, the file name bears the URL. So the one case I had, <laughs> the file name actually said faked, you know, fake SMS.com. Oh my gosh. In the file name. They... <laughs> and so they so, didn't think they didn't think to change the file name, I guess. Or they did, well, you know, when you do it on your phone, 
Cassie, the the file name isn't readily apparent. Obvious, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you like you do it and then you export the JPEG and it mm. just ends up in your photo album. And when you scroll yeah. through your photo album, it's it's not like being on a Windows computer where yeah. you're looking at a file explorer with all the file names. So they just didn't know. And then they forwarded oh, that to the HR department, right? As is, not knowing ever the entirety of the entire time what the name of the file name was. And so we may get, we will get lucky in wow. those ways where you might see a mid-journey uh, metadata on an exported image, right? That's been manipulated, a runway <laughs> metadata. That's the one where it turns a picture into a video. So all the chat GPT, that's different because you're usually copying, pasting the mm -hmm. actual text from the output into something else. So that's not like an actual document or file type that gets exported. But yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll get lucky. And there are sophisticated things that are being put in place from Adobe and their authenticity initiative where you could just mm -hmm. take an MD5 hash of a piece of media. And as long as it's been handled by other software that, that participates in that same initiative, the authenticity initiative, where at every step along the way, it reports up the MD5 hash along with the metadata to the authenticity server that's run by, or I don't think Adobe runs it, but I mean, it's hosted by the conglomerate, right? Um, right. For the initiative. And you can double check those MD5 hashes against that authenticity server to tell you whether or not it's been manipulated. So there is an industry-wide effort to control or track the versions that might end up being used as deep fakes ultimately. Like Nikon, a camera ma manufacturer participates in it. Windows participates in that. Microsoft participates in it. It's almost, there's so many participants. And if you can get enough of the participants that control the main arteries of mm -hmm. the internet and all those pathways participating in it, then we might have a mechanism to, the experts might have a quick mechanism to determine whether or not something is a deep fake. Now, you know, Metadata can be stripped. Things can be edited such that it's just a small piece in a larger file. Those are going to be hidden from the simplicity of that sort of protocol. Mm -hmm. um, but you can at least catch the dumb criminals, right? <laughs> so yeah. to the extent that it handles the majority of that type of authentication, I think we'll be in a good place because there is awareness around how devastating this can be. I want to talk about deepfakes a little bit more and maybe not so much in the context of your life as a an expert, but your life as a content creator. You you create content, your face is out there. I do it myself on LinkedIn. And I also mm. have an Instagram skincare account that it's a hobby thing I started up a while ago. And I have a lot of friends that I've met through that account who've really built up quite a large following. And I see for them the potential of not only deep fakes of their content getting scraped and right. synthetic versions of them created, but also when they're engaging in campaigns with brands, what rights they may be giving away. In perpetuity, I'm going to let you use my face and, and what that could really mean. It right. really puts into context the Black Mirror episode, Joan is Awful, where it was really yeah. on on that specific topic. And then I think that happening so close to the strike for the actors and the writers happening so quickly, I mm -hmm. think in that community that I'm plugged into, it really struck home of, oh my gosh, like what is happening here? Should I be worried? Yeah. What would your advice be to people who are content creators knowing this could be a, a legitimate issue for us? 
I think most of us as content creators that don't necessarily do it as a livelihood, but do it for branding or promotion or for fun, doing it for a creative outlet. I'm always looking at the latest gimmicks when it comes to content creation and to the extent that it can be automated, the better as far as I'm concerned, because content mm -hmm. creation does require some consistency and, and volume. I like that. And I'm good at staying one step ahead of whatever the latest and greatest is so that my own creative creativity does shine. That being said, I do feel for people that create content like writers and actors and everyone in that talent industry doing it for a livelihood and it being something that's diminished so that they aren't earning a living ultimately anymore. That's problematic. Um, but mm -hmm. I, and, but I'm, and I'm not optimistic that we can preserve the humanity in some of these industries. I think they will be overtaken eventually by AI and the decision makers that want to save a buck mm -hmm. by using AI instead of the human creators. So, you know, when you look at things that involve some predictable variations, um, you know, and that the machine can look at a, I don't think there's, I mean, there's always room for creativity, right? So that's what I mean by mm -hmm. staying one step ahead to the extent that you have the luxury to stay one step ahead. But if something is like your bread and butter doing makeup for um, actors in movies and so in TV and film, if you use any of the filters now, I mean, it's pretty amazing the makeup that you could put on yourself, like on TikTok with the lashes and mm -hmm. the blood. I mean, you're into makeup too, and it takes skill. And it can AI is so good at emulating the skill of putting that makeup on uh, right. on you, such that if you're faking the the actor, the, the the actor, then you could fake the makeup that goes on that actor too to fulfill the look and feel for a part. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I actually I feel like I I think that there's some sort of rollout of. Maybelline maybe or some makeup brand having filters on teams that you could use so you could apply makeup you could have virtual makeup on when you're dialing into teams so I haven't mm -hmm. seen that plug in personally but it it's definitely out there it's coming and those filters have gotten really good. It, it doesn't, if you drink something with the filter on maybe a year ago, yeah. it would go away. But now it's it's a much... Um, it doesn't distort. Um, mm -mm. It's amazing what they can do real time. So if you put your hand over your lips, it's not like there's uh, lipstick, looks like there's lipstick on the back of your hand. It mm -hmm. actually handles that now. That was one of the tips or the giveaways for a deep fake that I was talking about. Something that was... That's something that I posted myself is a um, is a hint or a giveaway that something's a deep fake. The, is the distortion when you um, you might tell the other person on the call, "Hey, put your hand over your face for me, real quick, just to make sure." That's one way of authenticating, but you can't rely on that anymore, and it's a cat and mouse game. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy, but I so you do like playing with some of the tools because. It it allows for scalability for someone who, like yourself, like myself, we're creating all this stuff on our own. We don't have like a marketing team helping us. So exactly. um, 
Have you created a synthetic version of your own voice yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've posted with synthetic versions of my own voice. And if you couldn't tell, then that's a that's pretty creepy, right? Like, it's yeah, actually so yeah. good that some of the stuff I put out there is using synthetic voice. So creating the script with ChatGPT, plugging it into my synthetic voice creator, and letting it generate my audiograms, for example. I mean, it's crazy. So I have. And it's so impressive that it's part of my workflow now for certain types of content. Yeah, I've. I, that's kind of on my to-do list to test out, just because I I want to see how it works. But eleven have you labs. Heard, use eleven yeah, labs for that. Oh, okay. Well, Descript, which is the app I use to edit, it lets you create a voice. That's it's your voice. It's not that good. It's not. It as isn't. Good. Okay. Um, okay, that's good to eleven know. Eleven labs I, has a little bit more authenticity to the voice. Less it has robotic. Like, it's less robotic. Like there's a slider that you can use to make it more stable versus more creative. So you get oh. a lot more intonation um, on the creative side. 11 labs. Uh-huh. Yeah, have, you, have you seen the information about Doppel AI, which is like an AI, ver- like a, a doppelganger of yourself that you can create. Like, I don't think they've launched yet. They're just talking about it. So, yeah. So, I use DID for that. Uh, mm-hmm. D ID. I think it's short for D identification for some reason, <laughs> but you can feed it a photo of yourself and it will animate it and it'll match it to, it'll match the movement of your lips to any sound file that you. Upload So you can imagine a workflow where you create a script in ChatGPT, you create your voice using 11 labs, you upload that to DID, and you'll get a basically a video post of what is it called when you, you basically a talking head video of you. And I've done a few of those already. I think I've seen those, but now it makes me beg the question, Jerry. Am I talking to the real Jerry or am I talking to AI Jerry? Yeah, you would know. Uh, you know, and I think that I, because we've talked so much, you mm-hmm. would get suspicious. I'm, and right now, the real time ability for like a uh, voice activated chat GPT chatbot is not great. There's still it's impressive, but there's still a pause in between because when we're communicating live. You're processing every word I'm saying as I'm saying it. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, the AI wants to listen to your entire sentence and make sense out of it first, and then generate the response. So there's like, you know, I don't know, a three second pause, which doesn't make it work for interaction like this between two people. You'd know right away. Yeah. T- so if you ever hear me talking and I don't ever interrupt you, it's probably not really me because I get so excited. I want to say something. It's not me being rude or anything. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have a thought. I want to follow up. So if I don't do that, it's probably synthetic me, not really. That's surprising. Me. You're pretty mindful about not interrupting. And when you do, you usually apologize for it. I just get really excited. I'm like, oh, I have a thought that I really want to share. Yeah, so yeah. some people think it's rude and I, ugh, it's just that the, you know, the urge to say something exciting but you're not rude i do the same thing i mean you do it enough to keep the conversation um you know fun and exciting there's some people that are just unbearably interruptive if that's a word they're just really really bad and i and there's been not a lot of people but a handful of people where it's just like 
oh, I can't get on a call with this person. They just take the air out of the room. Mm. They interrupt so much that I don't even want to start a sentence. You know? Yeah. So I, I end up being quiet the entire call. It's so annoying. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully, maybe they definitely need to get an AI version because then they wouldn't interrupt you. So yeah, I would appreciate a three second pause from those people. <laughs> Well, Jerry, I I feel like we could talk forever, but all good things must come to an end, including this episode with you. Yeah. Jerry, thank you so much for joining this episode. I appreciate it. Um, And I know I've learned a few things from this episode, and I hope my audience has as well. And to my audience, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and stick around for the next episode of Cassie and...